Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick and Nick, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become the most lethal, cunning, British secret agent of all time. Your code sign, Double O Flicks. Rick and Nick talk flicks. Not bad. That's all right. No. Al- although I think you mixed up a couple franchises there. I bloody well did not. Uh, you certainly did. And why are you talking to me like that? Mr. Moneypenny, don't speak to me like that. And where are agents Rick and Nick? Okay, why are you calling me Miss Moneypenny? If anything, I ought to be Felix Leiter. I'm getting into the spirit here. I'm getting into it. Yeah, you certainly are getting into the spirit because... Well, I think we have certainly alluded to what our topic is going to be if the title of today's episode didn't already do that. If only we could on a podcast do a gun barrel sequence, that would be all kinds of Blood red screens don't work in the radio though. It's if, all it's all in your imagination. I wonder if you're playing Goldeneye on the uh, N64 if we can get away with that. Maybe. Do you ever play that game? A little bit. Okay, okay, good. I've played more so uh, PS2 Bond games. Um, what, okay. What was the one? Nightfire was, that was what I played one, yeah. for PS2. I got a bunch of them. Yeah, but I, I did not have an N64 oh, growing oof. up. So. Some night we'll have retro gaming night, and I've got GoldenEye. It's one of the best games I ever played. Sounds great. Well, welcome to Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Yeah, I do. I have wanted to play a little bit more of GoldenEye. I, I have a friend who has it for N64. And it said I need to try it out. And I and I would like to try it out. They came up with an updated version, like GoldenEye Reloaded or something like that for the Xbox 360. It's kind of the same game, but it just isn't the same game. No, because it doesn't have that classic feel, right? You need pixelated faces. You right. know? Oh, it's, anyway, we're not just talking video games. We're talking movies. We're talking James Bond. Bond. That- Bond is our topic today, and we will be getting into that here in a little bit. But Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, and we love to have them aboard as a sponsor of this podcast. Thanks to the Bemidji Theater for being the sponsor of this podcast. They've got $5 movie nights on Tuesdays. You can catch the Bemidji Theater and the movies there on Highway 2, just across from the airport. And they, uh, you know, they got some great movies coming up here as we're just getting done with the summer season. Fall of 2018 is about to commence. It's looking like our last episode we did about the fall movie preview. There are several good movies coming up. Uh, most recent, I'm looking forward to The Predator. Yes, I've seen the previews coming for The Predator, and I have no clue what their vibe is that they are going for. No. It's hard to figure out. The TV promos are not doing it justice. Uh, from what I'm understanding, they are quite misrepresentative. So if The Predator underperforms, I think we're going to look at the marketing immediately. When Shane Black refilmed the entire last act to make it more scary, I'm not getting that vibe at all from the TV shots. But no. It is what it is. It's a little cheesy in terms of what I'm seeing as far as the TV spots but you know looking forward to next fall 2019 a big hole has opened up on that docket by the way because of the james bond franchise we've got some breaking news in the last week 
Are we diving in on that topic already, or what do a, we have more that we're going to dig way. into? What a good way. Why not? Why don't we talk about how it starts? You know, because it's it's the future. It's now, and it's now getting kicked future, more future. I did have one cur- one other current yeah. item to get into before. Oh, I, I suppose we could dive into that and make that our big story of the day, and okay. then on to our big topic. But but how about how crazy Rich Asians has done yeah. at the box office? It's been terrific. What have we said? If you can get a movie that's good and it's interesting and it's well done and you can find a way to sneak it in between the superheroes, you got yourself the makings of a good movie. Plus, it's been proof that the romantic comedy isn't dead if you find the right formula for the romantic comedy. And Crazy Rich Asians has done that. It's been great at the box office. It has done great critically as well. And it's added up to really good numbers all around. Two weeks in a row at number one of the box office. It's the little movie that could and did and is. So this is a good thing. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of romantic comedies. I'm not going to lie. If they're done right, they're good. Um, and a lot of the last 10, 15 years, Hollywood has dropped that ball in a big time way. It's paint by numbers. Um, but then you come up with something interesting and something new. It is based on a book, a popular book, but it's doing well. So I say good for them. Yeah, they found the formula, they did it well, and yet they brought a, a new twist and a new spin on it with what they've done. So well done to them because they've they've brought a, a nice boost here at this point in the month of August and with the box office. So quite good as we start to turn now into those movies that we discussed the other week with the uh, the fall preview that we did. Yeah. Transition? Transition. Transition. All well, right. Bond 25. It's getting kicked back, which is very disappointing, especially when you look at the timeline and think about the fact that, hey, 2015 was the last time there was a Bond movie. It has been a little while. Well, you know, you go back to the 60s, Sean Connery was Bond for seven, you know, for five years and put out seven movies in that time. I mean, they did one a year. Um, you know, to have them do like that is great. And I'm not saying they dropped the ball. The 60s was a completely different time, different era. But nowadays, if you strike too soon, it doesn't tend to work as well. Look at uh, Quantum of Solace coming very quickly, I think two years after after Casino Royale, that we had a bit of a break, and then they got good. I mean, Skyfall and everything else. I don't have a problem with a break so long as the break is well spent, and they're going to get it done right. But according to what's going on, Danny Boyle, who's a well-known British actor, he's crossed over into the mainstream, into the American mainstream. But only, even you and I were talking off air limitedly so he's a very well-known very well-regarded british actor train spotting is probably the biggest director one done. director yeah what did i say you said actor or actor uh, <laughs> d- director yeah director um, he is well well known and was signed up for this one he and his writing partner came up with a script for it they've guessed they've knocked heads with producers a couple of times and then it ultimately came to a head with a casting of the bad guy and daniel craig has casting approval and said nope and the producers backed him up, and that was all she wrote. So they're probably going to have to start over with a new script because Danny Boyle and his film writer are probably going to take their work and walk, and they're going to start from scratch. But apparently um, the previous writers for a lot of the Bond movies had come up with a story that was shelved in favor of Danny Boyle's. you got to think they're going to pull this almost completed script off the shelf, dust it off, finish it off, and probably move forward with that. Which they've been somewhat hit or miss here over the past couple of, of movies. Casino Royale was great. Quantum of Solace was very below average. It was rushed. Skyfall was outstanding. Spectre was all right. Yeah. I thought it was all right, but it wasn't quantum bad, but it was all right. Um, so 
I, I don't know what we might get from these these writers who are going to be stepping back in now that Danny Boyle has stepped aside. But it is frustrating that this is kicking it a little bit further along, and it's it's kind of further proof of of Bond getting. And of course, we're going to talk a lot more about the history of of the franchise. But but over the past couple of years, Bond has gotten a lot more. It, it's just. It's gotten a little bit more high maintenance with the way that it's been brought about. For instance, Daniel Craig saying he'd rather slash his wrists when he was going uh, than make another Bond movie, as he was going through the process of making one of the recent ones. And then he changes his mind afterward and says, "Yeah, well, you know what? Sure, we'll go make another one. Why? Must be the money. He's following a big, big money train in order to be in these movies. I mean, they're paying him." big, big bucks to be James Bond once again. And why? Because the formula has been outstanding here over the past couple of movies. He can deliver. He has delivered, and he is de- they've delivered big time at the box office. I mean, Skyfall was the first Bond movie to ever eclipse $1 billion at the box office. I mean, that's how huge it was. And then Spectre did terrific business after it. They've done great in terms of critical reviews. Casino Royale and Skyfall might be two of the best in the entire canon right up there because they added depth that had not been there previously to the movies. So why are they willing to give Daniel Craig all this power within the franchise? Because he's kind of earned that power with how well he's done, with how well the franchise has done since he's come in, with the way they have revived getting off the mat after a pretty dud-like ending that they had to the Pierce Brosnan sequence of movies but it is frustrating then that because of that, you do get this high-maintenance bit of work that comes with the production and that they are they are tightening it up almost as much as a Star Wars movie. But and I did say almost as much. That's nothing new. I mean, you get Sean Connery gets compared a lot to the Bonds because he was the first, and according to who he talked to, he was the best. But Daniel Craig has given him a run for his money. Um, but between the two of them, another thing that they have in common is both Sean Connery and Daniel Craig have a love-hate relationship with Bond. When Sean Connery came back to this franchise unofficially in the 80s, the title of the movie was a play off something Sean Connery had said, never again am I going to play this role. We'll never say never again. Ha, yep. ha, ha. This guy, when he did- A non-Eon produced movie. Yeah. It was a remake of Thunderball. You know, there's I have all the Bond movies at home, but I don't have that one because I already have it and it's called Thunderball. You know, that's I don't need it again. And the Thunderball was a much done better film, but that's a whole other point. We'll get into that. Um, but you know, the whole thing with, he did live in, or, uh, you'll only, uh, live in, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the title. Uh, you only live twice. There we go. Which was his fourth, uh, his fifth. And, uh, he was mobbed by the Japanese press when they were filming it overseas and he was, he just had enough. He just broke down and said, I'm done. And so when they were getting ready for Majesty's Secret Service, he said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. But that one didn't go so well, and so they were desperate to get him back, kind of like Daniel Craig now. They paid him a ridiculous amount of money, but also Daniel Craig wants, you know, casting approval, he wants this and that. Sean Connery had something similar. I'll do it if you pay me X amount. He was the highest paid film star at the time. He donated all of it to charity, but what he really wanted to do was make his own passion projects, and so they were having to agree to fund one or two or three or however many movies it was of his own choosing. So he got what he wanted. He got a King's Ransom to play Bond yeah, officially one more time. It was a then record $1.25 million salary. But since we're since we're diving into talking about Bond and how it all, and especially going back now to Connery, I think 
it is, of course, worth going back to how this all originated and how this all got started because it started out as a pretty a pretty low-budget production on the very first one with Dr. No, and yet it was rooted in the Ian Fleming novels but that came gotta, before it and some other creative ideas that also came before Bond hit the big screen as it hit the small screen and other things. You Also, you can't overlook, and you might not be aware of this, you got to give a lot of credit to President Kennedy, believe it or not. Maybe you don't know the story. But uh, Kennedy had given an interview um, where he said, what is your favorite book? And it had just come out in 1962, and that was from Russia with Love, which would ultimately be the second Bond movie. But this is before they'd made any of the Bond movies. And, uh, well, that's not technically true. They had made their first outing. It was a TV movie of the week. It was an adaption of Casino Royale, but very Americanized. He wasn't a British agent. It was part of the anthology series Climax Mystery Theater from the yeah. research that I did. Yeah. Uh, who was Bond in that? It was an American. I can't remember his name. <sighs> I, I'd never heard of him before, so that's why I can't remember his name. I need to look here. But it was, for sure. it was an adaption of Casino Royale. He worked for the CIA, and it was Jim Bond. Um, it, I guess it was fairly well done as far as a TV movie goes, especially when you compare it to what has come since. Barry Nelson Barry was Nelson. secret agent card sense James Jimmy Bond. There you go, Jimmy Bond. So that was the first out in Casino Royale, and that would be remade three times on screen. That was the first. They did a spoof and after the Bond movies had become successful and then somewhat recently with Daniel Craig and that real done version. But uh, that, that picked it up. So with Kennedy you know, basically saying, hey, I really like those books, people started to take notice. And, oh, there's a whole bunch of them? Oh, well, wow. But the funny thing is a lot of those novels aren't faithfully adapted. Some are, some aren't, but a lot of times they might just take pieces of the books. So to see the movies and then read the books... It's not the same thing. Um, sometimes they're faithfully redone, and oftentimes they might take the title and come up with a completely different story. So, do you like that? Because I kind of like that that they that the integrity of the books was maintained a little bit, even if they weren't trying to directly. But I like sometimes when, if it's adapted from a book, the book kind of maintains its integrity while the movie does something different, but something different that works. Although I know some people who with certain books, for example, The Lord of the Rings, you want to stay pretty faithful to it. But with the Bond movies it seemed like, and the Bond books, it seemed like there was a little bit more flexibility and creative freedom that came with them. When they started making the films, Ian Fleming was still around. Um, I don't think he had a problem with it. I don't think the, clearly the public didn't have a problem with it because Bond was an immediate sensation. When Goldfinger came out in 64, 64, it was huge. It was ginormous, you know. Um, so I, I don't think you could say that people as a whole had a real problem with it. You know, if you mess up the book and it's a classic book, then you've got problems, but clearly there wasn't an issue. Some of the books, and I've not read them, I'm only familiar with some of them. There's one book that was made into a movie that Bond only shows up as a cameo at the end. It's basically somebody reading his diary or something along those lines and Bond shows up at the end of the book. Uh, maybe that was The Spy Who Loved Me, I can't remember. But they were an interesting sensation, and I think for the most part, most of those books have been pretty well mined out. And ever since you got into the Brosnan era, with the exception of Casino Royale, they've all been completely original, not taking anything from source material from, from the books. So once they were mined out, then they start moving forward. So running into complications on script and idea, 
um, is its own thing. But sometimes they've been about some megalomaniac, whether he wants to destroy the world and start his own undersea world or whatever the case or uh, change the world's gold supply or whatever the case. Sometimes they're somewhat reflective of current times. You know, Bond and Spectre was always a, a spoof of the Cold War in a lot of ways. Smirsh, which, is a Sovi- which was a Soviet agency, was kind of masked up as Spectre and all of that. It was its own analogy to what was current, but not in the way that Star Trek was so good at doing. Right, and it, it ran a little bit counter to what was currently going on, and yet it also did get into some of the Cold War intrigue as... Yeah as the decades went along with the movie. But it started out just being cool and simple and taking on Spectre in the early days. It's funny, you know, if you're if you're in the younger generation and you're a millennial or even a early generation Z and you're watching Bond movies, you're watching Daniel Craig, they're pretty darn good. But if you go back and you go with the very first official Bond movie, Dr. No, came out in 1962 with Sean Connery, for one, they didn't quite have the formula down yet. It took about, eh, you could say from Russia with Love had it, but the third one, Goldfinger, they really had that formula down. And they've more or less done that formula altered to somewhat from movie to movie, but that's been all of them. And that's partially why I really like Dr. No a lot, because they hadn't figured out the formula yet. They're still trying to figure it out. It's still, it's a little bit more rugged with the way that they do it. Oh, yeah. there's, there's not as many cheap lines. That are in there. There's not as much that that is you, you can just tell is shoehorned in there to to be a part of the movie, like with the cars or the, or the other additional bits that come with the movie. Um, the women portion, that one was was already automatically in Honey as, Rider as part of the formula. Probably the most iconic Bond girl, and she was the first the most Bond iconic girl. entrance. Oh yeah, I mean you still see it. Every, if you ever see anything about the Bond girls, you will see. Ursula Andress is Honey Rider stepping out of the ocean in that bikini with the knife strapped to her to her hip. It was spoofed in Die Another Day with Halle Berry doing the exact same thing in pretty right. much the same suit. So, I mean, it it clearly made an impact. But, I mean, another thing about those movies is that they are very much products of their time. Yes. So if it was made in 1962, which Dr. No was, it looks like a movie made in 1962. If you go watch any of them from the 80s, they look like the 80s. And they look dated now, but if you go watch the the Daniel Craig movies 20 years from now, ah, they're dated because all the movies now are holographic or whatever they're going to be, then so be it. But what a cool way to watch the passage of time, the fashions, some of the technological stuff, some of the, the cultural backdrop things. The Cold War was around for a lot of those Bond movies, which is now well kind of flaring back up in its own way. Even Bond himself, you see the change over time in terms of fashion, in terms of manner. Connery, I've read something really interesting here. Terrence Young, who directed a couple of the Bond movies early on, including Dr. No off the start, took Connery on, on a tour of, of London, essentially. He, he took him to his tailor and hairdresser and also introduced him to the high life restaurants, casinos, and women of London. According to Bond writer Raymond Benson, Young educated him in the ways of being dapper, witty, and above all, cool. And it certainly shows then when you get into Dr. No and when you get into the movies that follow just with the manner, that that style of cool that, that Connery established in the first couple of movies. And yet also that that ruggedness that came with with um with, with the spy portion of it as well. He he brought that that toughness to it as well, that that spy grit, and yet also there was that constant 
aura of cool, especially when it's in the first couple of movies when when the James Bond theme would just play outright in the background. You knew this is just we're watching the epitome of cool striding across the screen right the the screen right now, even as he is reconning his own his own apartment room or his own um, hotel room to make sure that he's setting up ways to to figure out if somebody has broken in or not. You know, I, who hasn't checked into a hotel room and looked behind the pictures and checked for bugs under the phone? And not because you're really paranoid, but because... Dun, dun, or set up a dun. strand of hair along one yeah. of the doors to check and make sure that if somebody opens it, you'll know. Done it. Just for fun. Not that I was expecting anybody yeah. to do it, but it was... Yeah, I've done it. That was a Dr. No trick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it was... You know, it's been said, actually, that Sean Connery really just did an impression of Terrence Young. But Sean Connery as a guy is kind of a ruggish guy. You know, whether he, he'd been around before and done some movies, but he was really kind of an unknown guy when he was cast as James Bond. And he's had some hits and misses. But, I mean, even into the 80s when he was finally long done with Bond, he was still, after doing The Untouchables, voted as Sexiest Man Alive. And at that point, he was a balding, you know, graying guy. He's got that roguish, you know, let's just call it what it is, sexiness about him. And he's, you know, he's still around. He's retired from acting. But he's still active, goes to tennis matches a lot. You'll see him courtside, and he's apparently living the good retired life. Yeah, and so we get that that early impression of Bond, which which was started by Sean Connery, and that that just got things launched, and and there was a lot of a lot of interest that that started, and that's why they were able to bring a film every year for the first four, 62, 63, 64, 65. You get Doctor No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. And Thunderball, and that got the formula established Ooh. right there. Plus, it it took him to to various places all over. Goldfinger is interesting because a lot of it takes place stateside in Kentucky here, of here all in the places. US. Yeah, and, and in Kentucky, um, you get a little bit of of a tropical paradise in there with his his trip to Florida, but you also get him going into the Alps for a little bit in there as well. The locales, I think, were a big part of making oh, yeah. it what it was from Russia with love was great because you have it take place on the Orient Express for so much of it it, uh, on the train. And one of the cool things about from Russia with love is it it took so many nods from Alfred Hitchcock in many ways from North by Northwest with the train and all of the time that was spent on the train and the, the sequence with the, the chopper where he's being chased by the chapter very much took some nods and cues from um, from North by Northwest and the and the plane scene there as well. Thunderball gets very tropical with where it takes place, but but all of it revolves around the constant presence of Spectre as well, mm-hmm. and and the big the big bad organization and the at least for the first couple of movies the unseen number one yeah. is in there as well. Well, and this was something where it was kind of hinted at originally, but it never really came to the front until I think about the fourth one, really. And number one would turn out, of course, to be the Lex Luthor to Superman for Bond would be Ernst Stavro Brofeld. And he would be the guy, and funny enough, would become at least the Donald Pleasance version of him, would get his own campy pop culture follow-up with Dr. Evil, which is very much from the Austin Power movies, which itself is a Bond spoof. Um, Blofeld was spoofed as Dr. Evil 
you know, by Mike Myers and in particular the Donald Pleasance version of him. But Blofeld had a lot of different looks, but like you said earlier, was only referred to as number one and shown from the back and petting a cat. And it was, it was, it was very stylistic in its own nefarious way. But going back real, real quick to one thing about what made those movies really work with Sean Connery, Sean Connery was like a, a rough diamond polished. He was a thug, roguish guy that you could tell that they'd found in some, you know, British alley, pulled out, trained him, cleaned him up, taught him the sophisticated ways of life, but he could still hurt you and hurt you bad. Yeah, and but you can tell that too with with the when you watch those early movies, the interactions. That's another reason why I like Dr. No is you get that that yeah. interaction between him and an M for the first time. I, I love when when he comes into into M's office with uh, Bernard Lee, who is the the original M, and they're just having a, a run of the mill conversation. Um, in addition to what this new uh, this new task is that he has at hand, you're you're jumped you're dropped right into the to the world of Bond, basically. Oh, yeah. And he's talking about how you know he wants to use a Beretta, and he's trying to to tell to tell him, hey, you're going to use a Walther PPK. You're not going to use your own choice of weapon here. You can't just go off and do what you want, and yet that's the Bond style, just doing what he wants. And you get that that early idea that it's going to be that way, and yet you're dropped right into the world, and you get that right off the start. Well, and you always get from through all of them that Bond gets the job done, but he does it largely his own way, whether it's Q getting on him about, would you please return this equipment for, intact for once, you know, Everything gets blown up. Everything gets destroyed. Nothing goes to plan, but it gets done. You that know, the, became another piece of the formula was Q and his yeah. gadgets. Only, I think only in the first. Well, Blofeld almost always gets away, but you don't necessarily know that at first. You know, it's basically the whole. He gets away from the volcano base, but the whole volcano base blows up. So you're not really sure what happens to Blofeld. You think, well, maybe he went up with the volcano base. No, no, he shows up in the next movie as some other actor, Charles Gray, I think it was. No, somebody else. Um, it, it just works, you know, and so they get away. Blofeld always gets away. Even when they just did Spectre most recently, he still gets away or gets captured, whatever you want to call well, it. Well, he lives. One of, which one of the, the more ones did it appear that he was defeated off the start and yet it wasn't, they didn't mention him by name because yeah. contractually there had been this, they, they basically put Spectre in lockdown um, legally yeah. at that point to where you couldn't use Blofeld and you couldn't use Spectre. And so they, they made a guy out to look like him, and it almost looked like he had been killed. Long story short, um, like we said, they came from the books. When uh, it's, Before he started writing the Bond books, uh, Ian Fleming teamed up with a guy, a writer-producer named Kevin McClory, and they wrote an idea called Warhead something something. It was basically when they abandoned the idea and it didn't get written, he took elements from that and incorporated it into the Book of Thunderball, which then got made into the movie and all of this. Well, they brought Kevin McClory in as a lawsuit was being threatened, and so they brought him on as associate writer and producer for the movie. Um, and so that's how it started. Then McClory started coming up with ideas about doing his own version of James Bond because technically he did own some of the rights being as part of this lawsuit issue. So they stopped using the Spectre thing because that was something that McClory had a little input in and the Blofeld character. So there were lawsuits and they just kind of did away with it. When you got to For Your Eyes Only in 1981, the opening credit sequence is an unnamed guy that looks a lot like Blofeld, but you don't see him, and Roger Moore does away with him. And it does have some inside jokes, even in the references between them, 
Basically, it was the Bond producers saying to Kevin McClory, we don't need your Blofeld, we don't need your Spectre, we can go just fine on our own, and largely they did. Uh, there was a, Then they finally had a big rights dispute um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. MGM was going to do their own third remake of Thunderball, and finally there was a big come-together. Part of the rights were Spider-Man went to Sony, and uh, the rights were settled, and finally they could do the original Bond book, which was Casino Royale. McClory had no more stake on Bond anymore, so they could bring Blofeld back if they chose to, and they finally did. That's where that all comes from. It's been a long, 50-some-year yeah. ongoing saga, but it's finally done. Yeah, we celebrated so, 50 years of Bond back in 2012 with yeah. uh, with Skyfall, and we were also, I think, celebrating being done after 50 years with this whole legal battle that had been going on, yeah, with McClory and, and Thunderball. I mean, the fact that they got Thunderball to the screen in 1965 seems kind of amazing now, given all the but they the brought them on that they jumped they through. They brought him on board, and they said, well, you could be part of this, too. You can be a producer. McClory was promised one thing. He thought he was delivered another thing. Um, I think his contributions were minimal, but he was a guy who was looking for his due. Yeah. Eh, you know, be done with it. But, Con- we- but the Connery era was its own thing, very much a product of its own time, and really it was a part of the 60s. Even when he finished the role officially yeah. in 1971, Diamonds Are Forever, eh, it was already starting to get into the camp. But that's, like we said, they're products of their time, and we'll get more into the camp with Roger Moore, but it's not that it was a Roger Moore thing. It was kind of a, a 70s thing. The late 60s and early 70s, camp was coming in all over the place. Before we continue, one quick reminder, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, and we love having them aboard as a sponsor of this podcast. I actually got to go see Spectre at the Bemidji Theater when it came out a couple of years ago. So great place to catch a movie across the street from the airport on Highway 2. I think I've seen every Bond movie since Goldeneye there. Wow. All right. Something it's like your, that. It's your go-to place yeah, for it. You yeah. can always count on it. That's great. So the 60s kind of ends. I mean, you can think about what was going on in the late 60s. You had a lot of counter culture. You can watch the last season of Star Trek, which came out in 69. It was a little bizarre. It was a little campy. It was a little out there. Laugh-in, Rowan and Martin. That was, you know, really? That rivaled Saturday Night Live, even the before Saturday Night Live? You know, it just it was campy. And it was starting to become part of Bond, too, even with the last yes. Sean Connery outing. But then... Uh, well, we got it. We can't skip over George Lazenby. We can't do that, even though he no, was Bond and that, for one. No, that's worth bringing up. Yeah, yeah, because Lazenby stepped in in the sixth Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Very different Bond movie in many yeah. ways. Um, quick thing: I, I know many of you expect this coming into movies, but we do have spoiler alerts with these yep. with what we talk about here in in this podcast. I know you you may expect that coming in with what we talk about here, but just reminding you: spoiler. Bond gets married in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Big, big change of pace there. And then, well, doesn't last. Tracy long. Bond ends up getting killed, um, and Bond is quite emotional at the end of the movie. That just kind of summed up how different Lazenby was from Connery's general vibe that he brought to the role. Yeah, but I mean, the the movie itself, the story itself, the the filmmakers himself did not do Lazenby any favors. For one. At this point, there was only Sean Connery's Bond. I mean, now here we are in the you know coming up on a whole new decade. We know that Sean that uh, Daniel Craig's going to be replaced here pretty soon. It's something you almost look forward to. Ooh, who's going to be the new Bond? Back then, it was unthinkable. You don't. No, Sean Connery is James Bond, and he'll be Bond until the day he dies, and that's the yep. way it's going to be. No, 
So he had that working against him for one. Secondly, he wasn't British. He was Australian. Not the character, but George Lazenby. He was Australian. Well, he can't not be an American. But the Bond producers even had looked at some American icons. Like Burt Reynolds was offered the role of Bond. Really? I'm not making that up. Mel Gibson was approached at one point, and he's he lived in Australia for a long time, but he's American. He was born in New York. Um, so a lot of people that are not British were looked at as being Bond, and clearly they went with one, Australian George Lazenby. But the third thing that really undercut him, for the story of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, for a good portion of the movie, Bond goes undercover. He goes undercover in like every movie as an assumed name, but he's Bond. And he went so far as not only to put him undercover as you know some genealogist, but he was a Prisciationity genealogist, and that's not what Bond is. And they even had him dubbed by the actor that played the genealogist to perfect this illusion. But Bond is not a prissy, non-Bondian kind of Bond, but half the movie he is. They took him essentially out of his own character. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Lazenby could certainly deliver on it. I mean, the opening sequence, he pays homage to the fact that he's a new Bond. Yeah. And, you know, this never happened to the other fella, you know. Okay, we're going to have some fun. He's never happened to the other guy. Yeah, yep. he could he could certainly do it. I think if they'd given him a different story to start with, it would have been better. Um, but Honor Majesty's Secret Service at the time didn't perform that well. Now, luckily, over time, it's a very it's one of those. I would say there's three Bond movies that really break from the mold. That's the first. Um, I would say License to Kill is another one, and Skyfall, as good as it was, it does not follow the Bond formula at all. It's a very different Bond movie. Which we'll get to Which we'll later get to. On. But so, it didn't do any favors for the producers, didn't do any favors no. for Lazenby, and they were desperate to fix the problem. Connery came back one more time, Diamonds Are Forever, and they got back to the formula, but that campy 70s vibe is starting to make its way in. And that's where we come to... Roger Moore, who stepped in as the next major Bond to step forward um, for the character, the third Bond in a row, uh, the third Bond in sequence, and yet he was the next major guy to take over because Connery had started back in 1962 with Dr. No, finished in 71 with Diamonds Are Forever, in total six movies over the course of nine years. Now, let's take a quick time out. We're not going to count Never Say Never Again, because I don't count that. No, and that came in the 80s, Yeah, so that was later anyway. They did two Bond movies in 83 together. I think it was 83. Octopussy was the main one, and then they had Never Say Never Again. Came out like three months apart. Right. But Never Say Never Again is a remake of Thunderball. They'd already done it. Now, Casino Royale had been done, but had never officially been done. No. Until Daniel Craig did it. That's right. So we'll count that one. But Never Say Never Again was, he's playing the same part and the same role, altered, you know, adding his age to it, but it just, it wasn't the same. But then came Roger Moore, and so came seven movies over the course of 12 years mm-hmm. that, that were put together for for his movies. Very hit and miss. Honestly, hit yeah. and miss, and yet... When when you think about the time when when I talk to my parents about Roger Moore, it's really interesting. They believe that he is the best Bond of any of them, and I go, I look at them with my head tilted, going, "Are you crazy?" But they they grew up, they they were born in the '60s. They they grew up during the time of Roger Moore, and they grew up during that time when those types of movies, those what we would deem camp movies now, 
they were en vogue. They they were the thing. And Roger Moore with bell bottom pants, essentially, with what was what he was wearing uh, there during that time of the movies. The fashion was changing. The style was changing. You can hear that in the music when you watch those movies. Even though it was still following that formula, they were adding in elements of the 70s with the way that they were making those movies, coming up with new kinds of villains to put together for those movies. And yes, it produced some very campy movies, and in my opinion, some pretty poor ones as it got to the end of the more time. But they also had their own brand of entertainment to them, and, and some pretty good movies in there still with the Moore ones. You know, uh, some people don't realize Roger Moore was considered to be Bond when they were initially casting for Bond. You know, we only could do Connery, or we could do this Roger Moore guy. Roger Moore at the time was considered too young for the part when he was first cast. He's not that much younger than Sean Connery, but they considered him too young. But the other thing was, he did a, show, a TV show called The Saint, which was later made into a movie with uh, uh, Val Kilmer in the Simon 90s. Templar. Was Simon his Templar, yeah. So he wasn't going to be able to get out of that contract, something that would come out, something similar with Pierce Brosnan and Remington Steele later in the 80s. But that's another thing. Um, but he was considered early on. And so when they knew Sean Connery was not coming back after Diamonds Are Forever, well, we got to seriously look about the long road moving forward. And Roger Moore came in. Now, Roger Moore, depending on your perspective, we talked about, you know, one of the good things between Daniel Craig and Sean Connery is they were thuggish guys that had a touch of class that knew how to hurt you. Roger Moore was the classy guy that if he had to, you know, fire his weapon, if he had to kick you, he would. But you could tell he'd rather sit at the bar and have a martini. And he was really big into the humor. Even Roger, yes. even Roger Moore. He wanted to do something different, though. That's the key. Yeah. He, he wanted it to be different. Roger Moore really is not a big advocate of violence anyway. Funny being is that he's James Bond. You know, Gene Hackman in all his action movies is a big proponent of gun control. So you can run counter to what you actually feel. Roger Moore was also a fan of self-depreciating humor. He had said his acting technique was how, how big he would cock his eyebrow up. You know, is he curious or really curious you know that was roger moore explaining his acting technique so roger moore brought a completely different take to things but again you also had the writers at the time a lot of which were carried over from the connery era and over time that would kind of start to shift uh the bond era began to lose some of their producers that had been on board from the get-go namely harry saltzman sold his rights music was changing too john barry had stopped been doing it consistently the guy yeah. early on and then they were starting to change that over as well but even his first outing live and let die it was a very americanized version of bond because a good portion of it takes place in either new orleans or harlem and is not what you would think of as james bond Esque, and then you go to Caribbean islands, and it's a little different. But it also yeah, tied Jamaica. in, yeah. yeah, it tied into well, a, a fictional island of uh, whatever the name of the fictional. Country what, was. Well, that's where they shot. Yeah, it. they yeah, shot it was it Jamaica. Jamaica. Yeah, but you know, black exploitation films were a big thing in the early seventies, and right. Bond got way into that. And that's not what you think of as Bondian either. You know, the movie wasn't bad, but it was also the most rock and roll Bond. Uh, Paul McCartney did the soundtrack to it, or uh, did the so uh, the music to it, the song rather. And one of the Beatles' longtime producers, George Martin, did the score. It sounds very seventies. And later, even Marvin Hamlish did the score to one of the Bond. It's movies. a classic theme song, though. Yeah, the, oh, the, the Live and Let Die oh, theme I, song. I like the song just fine, but it just it was it was very different. And the Man with the Golden Gun came out next seventy five. In my opinion, it's one of the weakest of all of them. It's just, it's camp. It's just, eh. 
you've got the between those two movies, you had the police officer character, uh, Sergeant Pepper or whatever his name was. Yeah, that was. Um, it was comic relief and it was stupid comic relief. It was something you'd expect from a Burt Reynolds movie. You know, yeah. it just, it just wasn't Bond. And I think they finally realized that and they finally got their act together. And in 77, the spy who loved me, it was good. They got rid of a lot of the camp as much as you could in the seventies. And it was kind of a straightforward, almost a cold war backdrop movie and it was the first really good Morris, one of my personal favorites and yet brought the two factions in the cold war together in terms of having to work together yeah. with with making it all work there yeah I, I do like the spy you love me it was it was one of the better ones of the more time maybe the best one of of the more time um of movies but then then they start then they got entranced by all that was happening in terms of space and thus Sci-fi. came Moonraker yeah. in in 79 a weak one we start meeting jaws as well he starts getting into the mix too this this never dying big bad who's but he one, was a in, henchman essentially and he, he came in the later ones yeah then. he came in the spy who loved me and he was formidable but then they started making him comedic relief in, in moonraker whatever forward step they took for spy who loved me they took a back step went back to the man with a golden gun kind of you know mentality for moonraker and it, it didn't work it just wasn't good. Star Wars came out a few years before that, came out the same year as Spy Who Loved Me, and everybody went sci-fi crazy. Well, let's put Bond in space, too. So they did. They basically did a star, as close to Star Wars as Bond can get, but it was campy again. It was it was just for all intents and purposes stupid. Um, but then they get into the 80s, and in my opinion, and I might be biased because the very first movie I ever saw was Octopussy, so Roger Moore was my first Bond, so I'm biased. But on your for your eyes only... Is actually came out eighty one, and it is one of my favorite Bond movies. It just covers everything. It, he's um, you talk about locales. It's about as exotic as you can get from snow to surf. Everything is there. The plot was very Cold War oriented. You know, this is just after the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. It was very Cold War driven. Bond was actually more ruthless. There's a scene that even Roger Moore was uncomfortable doing, but it was very Bond. One of the henchmen was trying to cut, you know, run him down with a car, and he gets, you know, hanging off the edge of a cliff. Bond walks over, and rather than pull him out of the car, kicks the car over the cliff. That's very Bond, but, you know, Roger Moore did not want to do it. He did. He did the scene, but it's a great moment for Bond. It, for, it frankly is. It is one of the better movies there is. But the other problem is Roger Moore starts getting up there in age by the time the 80s come around. And, and you can just tell he's not as effective. No. If an ice princess, you walk into your hotel room and someone's broken in and it's an ice princess who's in bed waiting for you and Bond offers to buy you an ice cream, that's almost something your grandparents would do. You know, at that point, eh, okay, we're getting up there. Got worse with Octopussy, even worse with View to a Kill. It was like watching Grandpa Bond. I mean, no offense, he could still, so to speak, do it, but Bond has to be a certain thing, and he's got to be young, quite frankly, and that just wasn't working so much. So then we come to our fourth James Bond. Well, first, first, Octopussy over, gets overlooked a lot. Not only has it got one of the naughtiest movie titles, but it is, it's is—it's a good movie. It really is. I'm a fan of that one. Really? I'm I, a fan of Octopussy. I was less so a fan of it, yeah. It was it was a degree of seriousness to it. Of course, it had its camp. Now we're into the eighties, so eighties was less. Well, it had its camp, but it wasn't quite what it was before. It was. I think it was very Bondian. If it was a younger actor, maybe people would have liked it more. 
But it worked. It, it For me, it just worked. I liked it. It was, you've got the East and West Germany thing going on, which for those that are too young, they used to be different countries. They were one country, then two countries, then two, and one country again, like now. Um, but you kind of forget about the Iron Curtain if you were born after a certain era, and that's a lot of what um, Octopussy was about and jewel smuggling and everything else. It was a fun movie. It was a good movie. Um, View to a Kill was his last one in 85, and that one was definitely getting back to camp. But it also had its great elements. Grace Jones, who's just an unusual person anyway, makes such a good henchwoman. Almost, you know, pre-Zenya on a top. Working alongside Christopher Walken. What an yeah. ultimate Bond villain he, in a lot of ways, was. You know, I, I think the movie was campy. He was a little campy. A lot of things were campy. But Christopher Walken is just the ultimate Bond villain waiting to happen. And, I mean, even in real life, probably waiting at a bus stop, he's like a menacing Bond villain. But to get him as a Bond villain, I think he did a good job. I think the movie was a miss. A lot of things were eh, but it yeah, was Yeah, setting it, was. it in Silicon Valley there with, well, the the key climax stuff in Silicon Valley. Well, Trying to find something different, clearly. Something different, but, you know, this is the digital revolution really starting to hit a peak. I mean, now think about yeah. the way things are now with computers. Things been the in the early mid-'80s. We're just getting started. Computers were coming out, but what is a computer really going to be for? You just wait, you know. So it was it was always on top of what was coming, and so whether people got down on die another day because of the Koreas, well, that's not really an issue, isn't it? It is now, you know. So they can see kind of what's coming in the in the climate for the way things are going. It and it's not to say that it was a saving idea. The movie wasn't it wasn't a bad idea, but it just wasn't done well. It'd be a good way to do it. Movies of the 80s, you would say they were starting to get more serious, more gritty, right? That and audiences were getting more sophisticated, too. That's kind of what we got when we arrived at Timothy Dalton, the fourth Bond in in the series of James Bond actors. He was was supposed to be that guy who would step in and bring a completely opposite side of the spectrum to what we got from a real Roger Bond, Moore. yeah. Very real, yeah. Dalton was, he, he gets a bad rap. He was only Bond for two movies. He's Shakespearean trained. He's very well regarded. He's a very good actor. But his approach to Bond was to make it real. And, and some people have criticized him to say it almost looks like a reluctant hero that didn't want to be there in the first place. You know, <laughs> he was just... You know, and, that, and then he would go to work. That was Timothy Dalton. But he was a real guy. I mean, a lot of those stunts you saw him do, sometimes they were stuntmen, but oftentimes it was Timothy Dalton actually hanging on the top of a truck or actually, you know, dragging behind a boat or that was really him. You know, you didn't see Roger Moore doing that. Oftentimes you didn't see Sean Connery doing that. But he was a much more physical guy and he took a very real page to him. In fact, The Living Daylights was very much uh, a mid-80s Bore, uh, Moore type movie because it was being developed for Roger Moore to come back as Bond. And then ultimately Moore said, no, you know what, I am getting too old, it's time to go. And they just basically kept going with the storyline and just inserted a new Bond. Yeah, and they, they wrote a very late Cold War storyline there with with bringing him into the fold then for that. But here was, here was the thing, though, with Dalton. Like you said, he brought that that stage presence with being with being into Bond. And yet the problem was, as they tried to make him more real and more gritty and tough, there was no depth to it. There was no, there was nothing, it was just, it was very callous, kind of in a way, with, with Dalton. It just didn't, it had that, that realness to it, and yet at the same time it almost seemed like it was, 
it was too much or that it was it was surface level it in the lost, way that it took place. It lost a layer of fun, I think, but it also made Bond a little more human. You know, when Bond gets hurt, you know, you don't see him limp in the next scene. You know, with Sean Con- with uh, Timothy Dalton, if he got cut, if he got hurt, you saw it. They made him an action hero. Yeah, essentially, he was, he was he, a real guy. He switched back. They switched Bond into from the from the camp humorous role into an action role more so, and and sort of. Meeting the times, you know, the eighties, a lot of action movies were coming along that were, that were making it big on the screen. And I think the bond movies were trying to reflect that then with bringing Dalton in, let's make him the action hero guy who you don't really get much depth to in terms of what his character is all about, but we're going to make him tough and we're going to make him an action hero guy. And that's what, what they tried to make Dalton, which is funny since he was a very Shakespearean actor, like you said, it just didn't quite fit. Yeah, as a result, and he can do comedy. I mean, he's he's been in this one of the Simon Pegg movies, Hot Fuzz. I mean, he can do comedy. He's a he's a well regarded actor. But I'll give you another example of how you know it's these movies reflect the times. In Living Daylights, who's he helping at the end of the movie? The Mujahideen, later known as the Taliban. Yeah, the Mujahideen were pushing the Soviets out of Afghanistan, which is where the second half of that movie is set. He teams up with the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviets. That's great. In real life, shortly after that movie was made, the movie came out in 87, I think it was. So two years later, in 89, the Soviets pull out of Afghanistan, and these people take over the country, and they kind of warp things a bit, and they become the Taliban. Same thing with Rambo 3. Rambo teams up with the Mujahideen. So, you know, is it possible that, you know, Osama bin Laden could have been riding alongside Bond? It is entirely possible. For that reason, it's a Bond movie that watching it today hasn't aged that well for that reason, because guys that are now our enemies are our allies in that movie. Kind of an interesting subplot some people don't think about. Yeah. Some, it's uncomfortable, but it's true. I would never really consider, but yeah. when, you fre- when you reflect on it, well, and, yeah. and again, if you're watching something, for, if you're young enough and you don't understand how the history worked, you don't think about it. But if you've been around through all that, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, oh, yes, exactly what it was. So then we come to Pierce Brosnan in the 90s. Big break, by the way. Longest break between Bond movies was between License to Kill in 89 and Goldeneye then, which came in 1995. Here came Pierce Brosnan on but it, the scene. Again, it was a legal problem with the with the holding company that runs you know that runs the Bond movies. And Pierce Brosnan wasn't going to be Bond originally. They were going to try to bring him in when they brought in Timothy Dalton uh, for the Living Daylights. He'd screen tested for it, but he was still doing a TV show called Remington Steel. They wouldn't let him out of the contract, so he couldn't do Bond. And funny enough, then they decided not to do Remington Steel. He could have done Bond. And funny story, Pierce Brosnan's wife was one of the Bond girls in For Your Eyes Only. He was really? On, he was on set, actually, just kind of there watching <laughs> his wife, met Roger Moore and all so that. So he had been around it plenty kind already. Of, kind of been around it, yeah. So he, they were going to have Timothy Dalton back for the third one, which was Goldeneye. Uh, it was going to be a different story, though. And then they had the big legal complications. Things got held up, got held up, got held up. And then, brought, and then Timothy Dalton said, basically, yeah, I'm done. And they brought in a new guy, and at that point, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion who the best Bond would be going into the 90s, and that was Pierce Brosnan stepped in with 95's Goldeneye. And how about M becoming Judy Dench, which we'll get into in a little bit further on down the line here, because she she started out just being, you know, just carrying the M character on just from where it had been previously. Tough, hard-nosed leader of MI6, 
was just kind of how how she started out, but it was it was still just a bit character. M was still a bit character in the whole thing, but it was still notable that that they had changed now to Judy Dench, that they had gone from a male to a female within that role, and but that would have big implications later on when we get to Daniel Craig, but that also changed along with Brosnan stepping in. Well, times really changed. A lot of what made Bond Bond, and not just the character, but the movies, had changed since you know License to Kill. Uh, it was the Cold War was over. The, the wall had fallen. The Soviet Union ceased to exist in '91. There was no more Soviet Union. It broke up into a bunch of different countries, Russia included. Uh, everything was different. Plus, the way that the culture was, men and women. You want to say that the Me Too movement is an offshoot of what had started in the '90s and even before, or earlier than that. Um, absolutely, where you've got Bond and Money Penny, where normally there'd be a lot of sexual innuendo between the two of them. Now you've got Money Penny threatening sexual harassment. You know this what? It's a whole new different Bond, and it's even brought up Bond. Emma actually says the line: "I think you're a misogynistic dinosaur as a dinosaur and a relic of the past." And movie audiences were saying yeah. the same kind of thing. Is there a place for Bond in the '90s? So they take a look at this whole new Russia. Movement, you know, Russia's got to come out of the ashes of the Soviet Union, and that's a lot of what Goldeneye was about. A whole new world, a whole new frontier. Can Bond find a place in it? And Goldeneye did. It it was a good movie, a really good action movie, and yet Brosnan seemed to fit the role pretty well. I mean, he, you know, he just had that that charm about him with the way that he would that he just kind of carried himself. But then, as the movies progressively went from there. The action sequences, uh, just the action and the the stories and the plot, they they got, they got too simplistic, and, overblown, and, and over well overblown in some in some other ways, and especially the action. But the plot became just started to become simplistic, as in it had no depth to it, and the depth of Brosnan to Bond lacked less and less as each movie went along from there, and he just kind of. He just kind of started to go through the motions, it felt like, from there. I, so I don't know if I would agree with that. I think if you look at Bond as a spectrum between you know thuggish rogue and classy, stylish guy, and you could take a look at any of the actors that have played that part. And you know Connery was you know close to the middle, but more toward the thuggish side, and so is Daniel Craig, in my opinion. Roger Moore was way more to the stylish, classic, humory side. I think Pierce Brosnan was almost right on that center part. He's a guy that was clearly a physical guy. He knew how to be physical, and he could hurt you. But he also definitely knew his way around tuxedos and martinis and classy. He wasn't too much one or the other. He was right on the middle, and maybe you almost need him a little bit of a nudge more one way or another. I personally think he was a very good Bond. I thought he was more along the stylish side, but I'll let you continue. I, I think it was. You, I, what I, you I thought of him. I think he had a decent equal helping of both. I think he was perfectly balanced, but I think Bond necessarily functions better when you're slightly off balance. When you are a thuggish, roguish guy, I think Craig is a better Bond. Um, who knows his stylistic stuff. And he might even be closer to roguish than classy when it comes to Daniel Craig. You can tell his version of Bond it was some orphan that was found by the agency, hosed off, trained. He's still a ruggy street kid, but he's shown the class, very much like Sean Connery's Bond. See, for me, I think Brosnan suffered from two things. One, the the scripts and the stories yeah. that they came up with were not very good for the movies of his as they as they started to go along there. They... They tried to make them action, flash, substance movies, but they had no depth to them, and it, it was weak in terms of depth. The other problem, though, too, was 
Brosnan, it felt like, just progressively more and more was going through the motions in each movie, just with his lines. And his delivery is is one of those parts of it. He just, oh, he just kind of delivers it in that swarmy kind of tone, you know, just talking like this. And it's like, dude, come on, add a little bit more to what you're doing here. It just, it, it felt like the movies each lacked depth progressively as they went along and Brosnan lacked depth more and more as he went along. It started off on a really good note with Goldeneye, but progressively dipped further and further downhill from there to where it ended with Die Another Day. I would I would agree with that. Um, I think in a lot of ways the Bond movies were losing their footing as far as what they wanted to be. They had a really good identity early on, whether they were going through campy times or products of their time. But, you know, in the 90s, you had a lot of competition from a lot of glitz and a lot of other things. And Bond is trying to find, very much like Bond was trying to find his way in a whole new world in GoldenEye where everything had changed. In a lot of ways, that had happened with films in general. Movies were becoming much more sophisticated. The visual spectacle of them had to be really over the top. So Bond, if they were going to remake From Russia with Love in the 90s, it would have had to have been, it couldn't have been a train. It would have had to have been something much more high-tech than that. They had to find a way to move something forward, and they went too far, I think. And especially with Die Another Day, Bond was trying to be something very, very glitzy and over the top, which he isn't. It left the realm of believability. But then the legal battle was broken. And finally they could do Casino Royale on the big screen. And they changed Bond before it. Oh, the horror. Oh, yeah. A blonde Bond? What? Do you remember the pushback on oh, this? Oh, I remember it Craig, very well. It Craig was is crazy. Not it was, it it was, was ridiculous. Nuts. People were like, are you serious? Why are you going to go with this guy? I, I, it was so dumb. Oh, yeah. So dumb. He shouldn't be blonde. He doesn't look like a Bond. He did, 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 didn't matter. This And clearly now, here we are many years later, and clearly Daniel Craig is, in my opinion, a strong contender for the best of all the Bonds. Yes. Um, I think he's earned that. And Casino Royale was just a smash hit. It did super well at the box office, and critically, it knocked it out of the park because this was the Bond origin story. This was young James Bond first getting into the field. He is raw. He just will take whatever action he's, he deems necessary. And this is where Judy Dench as M really, really, yeah, really steps forward into the spotlight. When's the first time that we see her in the movie? After Bond has gone on his rampage um, down in Doesn't the... Doesn't he break into her apartment first? Is that her first scene? No, she. Uh, this is after Bond has gone on his rampage in Africa, uh, in in Madagascar, where he he basically did things on his own. That's right. And she is walking through the halls of MI6, and she is just furious. Uh, the language is is colorful. It's it's like, whoa, th- this is something different than what we have seen before from the M character and from Judy Dench as the M character. This is. This is something completely different. A stern mother character. That's right. And then Bond breaks into her apartment, and you see the Bond-M relationship in a new way in this movie. And you see Bond having to learn some very harsh lessons. And not only that, but you see his heartstrings getting tugged on a little bit. Um, Mathis kind of kind of says that to Bond in at one point in the movie. Is like he's like, "She broken your heart yet?" Or or something along those lines. Has she stolen your heart yet? Or just Along yeah. those lines, um, but he's yeah. but he's also not the Bond we've come to know. He still has and, and Eva and Eva Green's character is is certainly not your typical 
Bond girl no. either. She's she is some someone completely different. She is sharp. She's quick. She's she's a match for him mentally and in terms of what her role is to play in there. Um yeah, what Vesper Lind brings to that character is yeah, it brings to the typical Bond girl character is something entirely different as well. Oh yeah, in some ways she's his equal. Maybe not physically, but at least intellectually, she's not a damsel in distress either. Um, and then you find out there's a bit of a twist there, and she's kind of playing both sides, whether she's coerced or not. But still, um, the ending of the oh, book. Oh, very coerced. Oh, yeah. yeah. The ending of the book, the ending of the movie, the book was very, very faithfully followed by the movie, as a matter of fact. Not entirely, but pretty darn close, including the torture scene, which a lot of people. Oh, have, there's no, man. There's no way they're going to put that in the movie. And they did, you know, almost <sighs> verbatim to what's in the book. So, and as far as the two previous versions of Casino Royale. This one blew them both away, one of which was a spoof, one of which was an earnestly made but highly altered TV movie. This one got it right. It was very, very close. And as to this day, the last real Fleming inspiration, I guess you could say, taken directly from any of his books. Um, beyond that, they've all been very, very original. Because what did we get? We got the combination of that, that suave nature of it that came back. I mean, a high-stakes poker game in Monte Carlo. That's as high class as you could yeah. you could ask for in terms of adding that that sophistication to it, and yet at the same time it also got back to the the tough gritty side of it as well. And Daniel Craig brought that. I mean the 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 free running sequence that they had off oh, the that start was that, that chase in Madagascar was super. Even the very start when they go in black and white and show his first kill to earn double O status. I mean starting. At the very beginning. Well, and, in it, that way. and taking parts from the, I forget what the card game was in the book, but it wasn't Texas Hold'em. Texas Hold'em, if you remember, in the 2000s, really started to pick up big time. Tournaments were popping up everywhere. Yeah. So they just changed that from, you know, te- Bond is playing Texas Hold'em in, in the movie. I mean, that was just reflective of what was going on at the time, and it's still very popular today. Yep. So it just it really launched Bond in a way that you know if this was a real deal it was believable, but added emotional depth yes. in a way that had never happened before and opened people's eyes like oh these people do have hearts yeah these people do have some substance to them and that the ending of Casino Royale just it it cuts to the core of wow yeah. this is how Bond was created essentially this added a big piece to that puzzle my wife will hate hearing this but at the time it was like 2006 i think that the movie came out about five years before i met my wife but i went with a girlfriend to go see this movie she was she'd seen bits and pieces of bond movies she was eh. she went under protest to the movie she by the time the credits were rolling the opening credit she was in she was like this is good this whoa yeah she, she wanted to see it again she loved it she wanted it on dvd she was a fan right then, right there, and I think a lot of people were. They saw what Bond had always been and a lot of what Bond had never been put together, shaken, not stood. Now, Quantum sort of went back the Timothy Dalton route a little bit with making it a little bit more of an action movie in, in its essence, and it, and it carried on the story from Casino Royale, which had never been done before, but then... Came, it, but it, we got a big we, one after that. Well, let's take a pause with that. But Casino or Quantum of Solace, the big suffer with that was the writer strike. They rushed to get this movie made because they knew that if they waited, the strike was going to hit and they were going to be in problems. And they had an incomplete story. And on set, Daniel Craig and Mark Forster, the director, both wrote in the gaps. And you could tell the movie is one of the shortest movies. It's a very shallow movie. It's a very thin plot. 
it just didn't work. You could tell yeah. it was rushed into the kitchen because it was. Daniel Craig was not happy after that one, but they, sh- they, but what they should have done, what they should have done was just wait. You know what's more important that you're going to get the movie out by a certain time or get it done right. If something like that's yeah. going to happen, you can rush it and see what happens. But history has shown it doesn't tend to work very well. So don't just wait. You know the strike will be over. Figure it out and then go from there. But like you said, it did make for a heck of a bounce back with Skyfall. Skyfall is in my in my opinion, it is my favorite Bond, and I I would put it. I would. I mean, obviously, it's up there among the very best, but I would put it as the best, at least in my book. It just had everything, and it had everything in terms of paying homage to the past, and yet at the same time forging a path forward for the future. And what did it do? It went to its roots. They've had so much of the movie take place in England and in Scotland, and it, it produced just a heck of a movie in that regard, even with the way that they have to move MI6 underground to the old tunnels of the 40s um, with with getting back to their, their core in that sense, too. And once again, it's a Bond and M movie. Oh, yeah, and very much. And it's so good that way, the way that Judy Dench's M just rises up in, in such a spectacular way that they used her character as, the, as they are trying to look at what is espionage in today's time with today's kind of, of villains, like what you get with Silva, who is... One of the a, best bad guys yeah, there's been. Javier Bardem was terrific as Silva. And then, and then you've got Bond, who's caught up in the midst of this, a guy who is a relic of the past, trying to become something for the future, and showing that, that they're... Like Bond he said, human. sometimes there is still a trigger to pull. Yeah. When it comes to these things. Or not pulled. Or not pulled. That's you know, right. And you got to give Harvey or Bardem, what, what a good psychopath he plays. Not just for the old, old no country for old men. What a great, I mean, people have said that's the best explanation of a psychopath right there. He takes a version of that character with a little more flair and brings it onto screen for Skyfall. And it's just one of the more menacing, you don't know what's going to happen with this guy. Plus one he seems to have his tentacles everywhere yeah. in terms of everything that's happening. And the way that things are so digital nowadays and the way things work and you can get into everything, that was one of the first times that had really been brought up in a Bond movie. Plus, we've t- we've had, we've talked a little bit about the music. The Bond theme is always something that people are interested in. What is going to be the theme for this movie and who is doing it? Adele put forth one of the best ones that's been done in, in the history of the movies. Obviously, Shirley Bassett's Goldfinger is is considered by many to be one of the best as well. Adele's Skyfall yeah. is certainly one that ranks. Chris Cornell, when he did You Know My Name yep. for Casino Royale, was a great one. But Adele brought forth a great one then for Skyfall, too, that well, really it, re- reflected the tone of the movie. Oh, yeah. But even not just the music, but the, the score, the orchestral score. And it had always been something big and brassy. Now you get a guy like Thomas Newman, whom I am a huge fan of, who is very non-traditional in a lot of ways. He is very much non-Bond in just about everything he does. So he came in to do the score for both Skyfall and then later Spectre, and it worked. It really worked. It was a completely different sound dynamic than anything that had come before, but wow, did it work. And he knew when to pay homage as well. Sometimes he did dial it back to the 60s. One of my favorite scenes in Skyfall, without question, is when Bond and M they they've gotten out from the uh, the attack on on the uh, the judiciary part of London there, and they they go to change vehicles. He flips on the light in his his storage space, 
And what do you see but the, the old Aston Martin DB5, one of the classic cars of the series, maybe the iconic car yeah. of the series. And you hear the old music kick in. I remember when I was in the theater with my friends, we just started whooping and hollering. And Everybody. We were so oh. excited. And then Bond threatens to eject M when they're driving <laughs> along. And she's like, it's rather uncomfortable, isn't it? It's, it's great. Oh, go ahead. Eject me. See if I care. <laughs> It was everything about that movie was, was awesome. They, the, the setting as well in Scotland was super. Absolutely, I mean, there's yeah. I can't point to one bad thing or one adjustment could be made with that movie. It, I, I don't know if I'm going to agree if it's the best yet. I, I'm not there yet, but by gosh, it's up there. It is right up there, um, and it might very well be. Um, but it's just it's a different time, different era. So I will, you know, you can't take away from what had come before. But what came after with Spectre was kind of a step forward and a step back. And to some degree, and they pretty much brought back everybody they brought in was with Skyfall. You had uh, and got uh, them into the field as well. Yeah, Ralph Phineas has now taken over as well, M, and I like him a lot. Yeah, he, and even behind the scenes, you had the same director, same music, same writer, same everything, and yet somehow something was missing from the one before. You brought in you re- the return. That's because it wasn't the one before. Because it wasn't the one before, but you brought back Blofeld the first time since 1971, and he's back officially anyway. Um, but they did that marketing snafu where it's not really Blofeld. Yes, yeah. you've gone over this time and again of how you don't like that, that I don't, technique. I don't and like yet, it. And yet people knew. Yeah, people, people knew, knew, but they doubled down and they insist, no, 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 it really is. It's Hans Oberfelder or whatever he says his name is. Oberhauser. Oberhausen. Yeah. Eh, it doesn't care. And they did the same thing with Star Trek Into Darkness. Everybody knows this is a secret that's not a secret, so don't play us like idiots. But it would be funny if... No, no, it really is Hans Oberhauser. And they're kind of giving you a wink nudge. They don't do that. They doubled down. No, no, no. Yeah. This is not Blofeld. It's yeah. some other guy. Franz Oberhauser. And then yep. you find, oh, of course it is Blofeld. That was kind of stupid. And people don't like it. I don't like it. What I did like, which was kind of cool, was they, they found a way to piece together some of the different stories and and yeah. bring that into the Spectre arc. and. Yes, you you kind of had to know those other movies to know how this how this worked, but it did make some sense of. Yeah. So this is how Spectre's been operating in the shadows, and that's how yeah. you bring them into the modern day is by by having them essentially be the the runner. Every other organization that we had seen previously was the runner for them. Whether you like that, whether you don't, in the way that it attached together, I thought it was a cool way to reintroduce Spectre and bring yeah. it back in. I didn't have any issues with that at all. I thought it was a swing and a foul, a swing and a foul ball for Spectre. I mean, even the opening, the opening song by uh, um, oh Sam Smith. Thank you, Sam Smith. I was going to say John Legend. Have you heard the Radiohead version that they did? No. For, oh, it's terrific. I was like, why didn't they? Why didn't they have this? This was great because Sam Smith's was okay. It, it uh, just, it just didn't. It, it was so yeah. underwhelming. It was like, it was the musical equation of equivalent of a sigh. Yeah. It the rate. The Radiohead one though is great. I haven't heard, I have to look for that Love one. Love that one. The movie wasn't bad. It really I mean it's hard to follow a movie like like Skyfall. It tried to be a lot. It brought in eh, it just 
it just didn't quite do it for me. It wasn't bad. It was. It really wasn't. It was better than spec. It was better than uh, Quantum of Solace. I really thought it was all right. Like I'd give it a solid C- B minus. Uh, B minus C plus. It was okay, but you know, it was it was what it was. So where Bond is going to go from here? You know, we know that most likely Daniel Craig is his twenty fifth Bond movie, if and when they get around to actually filming it. Um, then the good things will be coming. Um, but they're also talking this is going to be the last one for him, most likely. And, of course, one of the names that's been propped up a lot would be interesting, the first Black Bond. But Idris Elba just came out recently and said, nope, nope, not going to happen. But, you know, this is the same group that says, no, it's not Blofeld, and it was. I'll believe it when I see it or don't see it. I think he would be fine for the role. You know, could Bond be a woman? I've heard that one before, too. I think there's there's room for a character like that, but that's not Bond. It's like having Indiana Jones and making it a girl. Well, that's not Indiana Jones. That's Lara Croft. You know, they're very similar, but they're not the same. You know, let's not try to change things around and make Lincoln, um, you know, President Lincoln was who he was. Let's not be, you know, creative and try to change what it is because it isn't that anymore, you know. Um, but, you know, changing an ethnicity perhaps. Possibly. You know, we've got to be British. Right, because you've said before that James Bond is is just merely a name. You've told me this before. James Bond is merely a name. And that allows for freedom to be creative within that name and within that overall idea that well, comes with James Bond. One of the theories is is that James Bond itself his, himself is a code name. But there's two ways to look at it. Now, through the movies, there's been references to... You know, when Sean Connery didn't come back, well, this never happened to the other fellow. And when Sean Connery returned, well, I've been on holiday for a while, you know, and they've made references to the fact that it's somebody different. But at the same time, there are things that have carried over, like, well, he was married once. Oh, you know. So it's hard to say, and Roger Moore is visiting the grave of Tracy Bond. So it's hard to know which line of thought you want to go down, but is it possible that the name James Bond is just as much a code name as 007, and it's a different guy taking on the name and the code line? That's a theory. But that's to suppose that it follows your typical logical idea of, oh, this is the guy's lifespan. Unless you're opening it up to say, this is just a series of adventures that takes place with this general character. We've been given his starting point, Casino Royale, and now everything after that is what happens under the James Bond name. And it depends on how you want to look at it, really. I agree. With is there a sequence? Is there not? Does it even matter? Does it really matter or is it just something to be enjoyed? You know, Superman has been around forever. Well, he's an alien. He doesn't age doesn't he? You know, how many Robins have there been to Batman? There's been different guys playing Robin. It could be either way. It could be both. It could be neither. And it doesn't really matter. It's a sign of the times and it's become as, I can't say as American as apple pie because it's very British, but it's yes. it's as British as tea and crumpets with the Queen. But the great thing is, and we saw this with Skyfall, Bond has been brought into the new era and it was successful in that way with the way it eclipsed a billion dollars for Bond to do that at the box office was such a huge jump. Spectre had a great had a great outing at the box office as well. Um, that Bond has come into the new era and is still finding new stories related to espionage and related to what has made the Bond formula work. Yet it also continues to evolve with the times in so many different respects and has brought new people in in with it as well that give it a different feel every time. And that's why I have every reason to believe that the James Bond movies will just continue on and on in that way because 
they can yeah. and they are able to and they have found ways to come up with new formulas and even when there have been missteps or movies that have just not done it they've found a way with with f- movies that then follow to say okay let's refocus let's reassess where we are and then they produce a movie that works with the time and then stands the test of time in some cases you know bond is one of those things that's been built up it's been torn down and rebuilt again the foundations are strong and if it if they weren't they wouldn't be here 50 plus years on bond has been around for a long long time and if you are brand new to bond and you just saw skyfall or specter and that's all you've seen and now you're going to go back and see the originals you know, just prepare yourself. They are t- products of their time. The way movies were made in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s are not the way that they're made now, whether it's the way of the time, whether it's the actor, whether it's just the way that films were made. Um, they're a journey, but they're also kind of a time capsule. They are very much staples of the years and the time, the climate of which they were made. And that's one of the big things with Bond that I get a big kick out of. For a final thought, to borrow from what Q said in Skyfall, slightly, Bond is not quite the old warship that's being hauled away for scrap. It's being reworked and reclad in such a way that it is continuing to move forward into the future and come up with new movies for the future and pretty entertaining movies as it's proven over time. Yeah, and he also knows they finally figured it out after dying another day. He's not Jason Bourne. He's not you know Rambo. He's not Indiana Jones. He's his own character, his own vibe, his own flavor. And he has found a way with Daniel Craig in particular to be true to that. This has been Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, and we are sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Great place to go catch a movie. Don't forget about their $5 movie nights on Tuesdays as well, located on Highway 2, just across from the airport. You're supposed to talk over that. Very good. Yeah, it's, it's fun talking about the Bond movies. But before we go... Really quick, your favorite Bond movie and your favorite Bond theme. Really quick. Bond theme? The song? Yes. Oh, you kind of throw you have to go first because you're throwing that at me one. All right. I already said it. Skyfall is my favorite. And as far as Bond theme, I still love the original one from Doctor No. I just I love going back to the classic. It's my ringtone on my phone. I love the classic one. If if I had to go with one of the lyrical ones, I would go with Chris Cornell's You Know My Name. Well, you can't say the James Bond theme is the favorite because, of course, it's the favorite. I had that played at my wedding, by the way. You did? When we came out, Good for you. When we came out for the wedding reception, like the processional, the oh, bridal well party, done. that was it. And then we came out. You, I'll show you the picture. There's my, my wife and I were doing the, the finger guns thing to the Bond All theme. right. Then if I can't pick the original theme, I'd say Chris Cornell's You Know but My that's, Name. But that's universal. I would say Tina Turner's Goldeneye. It was very modern, but it also threw back. Wow. That was a pretty good one. Best movie? Oh, I, I can't, favorite movie. I can't say one. I really can't. I've got three, and they are Spy Who Loved Me. They are from uh, For Your Eyes Only and Skyfall. Those are the three, and they're all three. I can't pick one over another right now. But those are my three favorite. See, it's tough for me because Doctor No and From Russia with Love like nip at the heels of Skyfall. Like I loved those two yeah. as well, but. I gotta help you learn to pick one movie. I, it, we, we've got to work on this. At some Ugh. point, when the when the when the whole, when the ocean is wide, you don't take just one cup of water. This is my favorite part. No, it's just I like this, and I really like this, and I like that. I can't separate them. That's what they are. There's so much to choose from. There's 50 years, and now 24 movies, and coming on 25. Um, if I had to pick one, how about for your eyes only? All right, there you go. Very good. 
glad you could settle I'm on that. I'm to make you happy. I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Double O Dave. <laughs> Very good. And we will see you next time at the movies. <laughs>